you, brother. Good to be back. And in your bulletin, you have uh, a little outline of where I'm going this morning with this message. This is the fourth in this series. Pastor Matt did the first two and last week, and now this one makes the fourth in this little series on Psalm 119, which is a very interesting psalm in its structure. David knew the value of memorizing God's word. He said, in fact, in verse 11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. The reader of the Bible understands why David would say those words and why he felt so strongly about it, because he had a struggle against sin all of his life. Was David unique? David was a man, and I can't speak for women, but I know that men have wandering minds. And David did. And you will see surfacing in this psalm some tremendous help for all of us to serve the Lord, just as we have been singing. The structure is interesting. In the Hebrew alphabet, there are not 26 letters, as in English, but there are 22. In order, we think, we don't know for sure, but scholars believe that in order to help him memorize what he was putting down, David decided to take each letter of the Hebrew alphabet and he would make eight sentences beginning with the first letter. You notice it in your Bible if you have it there. And as you go through, there are 22 different divisions, each one the letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so, if it was in English, we've lost all of that in the translation, but if it was in English, then the first eight sentences would all begin with A. The next eight sentences would all begin with B, and so on. You have 22, eight each gives you 176 verses in the versification that we have today. Small wonder that some scholars have called this the Christian's golden alphabet. The ABCs of the praise and love and power and use of the word of God in our lives. The study of this sacred song has proved helpful to men of God down through the centuries. I've just reread the biography of William Wilberforce, one of the men who two centuries ago changed the course of history of the whole world, bringing freedom to slaves. Some of you come out of the West Indies and you are here today recognized and respected just like all of us, no matter what color skin we have and what background we have, because God used Wilbur, Wilbur, uh, William Wilberforce. And one time in England when he was walking home from the House of Parliament, time of political trouble, he was committed to Christ, 
He was a biblical Christian, and he said in his journal he walked from Hyde Park Corner repeating the 119th Psalm in great comfort. Augustine, before him, commented that in this psalm were hidden depths beneath an apparent simplicity, making the exposition of it all the more difficult. Spurgeon referred to this psalm as David's pocketbook. In this electronic age, he would say David's notebook or iPod or something. We have here, Spurgeon says, in Psalm 119, a royal diary written at various times through David's life. I got that idea from reading part of Spurgeon's long exposition of Psalm 119. It was a new thought to me, and yet as I reread Psalm 119, it made a lot of sense, and that's the structure that I'm going to use today. The idea that in the first verses, David was a young man, and he carried his electronic notebook with him through life, and as he had experiences, he would add some more stanzas. And then we see as he matures and goes through the experiences, we will see how the psalm ends up when he's an older man. We're going to look at four topics, and I had to start them with the first letter, given them what I have just said, and so I've chosen the letter S. Selecting the right path, surviving along the way, steadying your steps, and singing your way home. First of all, selecting the right path. Verse 9, how can a young man, or lady for that matter, keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word? The word young man, drenched with testosterone and bravado, does not easily fit into the same sentence as purity. This world laughs at purity. If you are a young man and you share with anybody out there that you have a goal of purity in your life, you're not going to win many friends. They'll say, well, first of all, it's impossible. It's impossible to even try. Why not have some fun? Why not eat, drink, and be merry? We only pass through this life once, you'll hear. But wait. If you, as a young man, have heard the whisper, the silent, quiet voice of God calling you, God calls you to himself for a very different life. And to embrace God is to embrace holiness. We don't talk much about holiness in our particular branch of the Christian church. There are some churches that make it the focal point of their theology. I'm not suggesting that the Baptist should do that. I believe in balance. But I do believe that we need to underline from time to time what the Bible underlines. And the Bible says that when we 
come to God, God calls us to a life of holiness. An incredible concept, as this chapter does, as this verse does. If you have set your goal on a close relationship with the Lord, holiness has to be part of it. Otherwise, you're not going to hear what God is saying to you. You're not going to have a heart that is soft and eyes and ears that are open, as we were talking about last week. If you have your goal set on a solid future marriage, with some select young lady. Young man, you're going to be interested in this verse today. If you'd like to avoid one of the dozens of sexual diseases that are out there just waiting to latch onto your body and destroy you, this could prevent it from happening. If you want to approach your future marriage, young man, without all of the turmoil and guilt that most young people come to when they come to that marriage moment today, if you want to see yourself set apart from all of that mess, that people struggle for years in their marriage to try and leave behind them, Christian or no, and I've done a lot of marriage counseling, this is a verse for you to take note of. How can a young person keep their way pure by guarding it according to this word that we're holding in our hands today? What a challenge it is. It's just as relevant today, folks, as it was when it was penned 3,000 years ago. Without God's word, it is impossible to live a pure life. Did you get it? Without God's word, it is impossible to live a pure life. To walk the Christian life, to discipline your body, to keep your heart, to protect your emotions from the ravages of the effects of sin. Friends, sin has a price. And that price is a high price. Don't think just for a moment that there are some of us somehow who have our lives here because we happen to be special, and somehow or other there are people who walk the streets of Ottawa homeless, addicted to any long list of things whose lives have been for years an absolute mess. We are all created by God and we all have the same potential to be down there or up there. And the reason that we came this morning and had a nice warm shower and a comb to get through our hair and maybe some of us had a car to drive or you had a few dollars to buy a bus ticket, that's because of the grace of God that you are here this morning sitting as you are and you're not out there. That's because somehow or other, 
You have heard God's word, you have responded to God's word, and in the measure that you have, you are living in the blessings of it today. And what we're saying today is that because you have come and protected from there to there, now God can move you from the ordinary Christian life to a life that is even more on a higher plane, you can fit yourself into this verse if you follow God's word and say, Lord, I want to live for you. Lord, I want to have a holy life, selecting the right path. This world has so many pitfalls. I don't want to see any young person choose a handicap of their own making. Just imagine, I'm not a golfer. I've golfed a half a dozen times. I've hit a couple of cars with golf balls and decided that that wasn't my sport. What was your first clue? There are people who are such good golfers that when they golf with their friends, they don't start off even with a zero-zero. They give themselves a handicap. I don't know much about that, but... I guess what they simply say is, well, to their buddy, well, you're an average golfer. You can start with zero, but I'm going to give myself a half a dozen points up so that I'll give you a better chance. That's a handicap. This life can be difficult. Let's not start off our life in our younger years by giving ourselves a handicap so that as we go through life, we make it even more difficult. Doesn't make any sense. Surviving along the way, verse 14. You are my hiding place and my shield, I hope in your word. The Lord never promised us an easy life. Skies without clouds, roads without potholes, mountains without avalanches, they're all there. Centuries ago, John Bunyan wrote an incredible allegory called Pilgrim's Progress. In fact, when I went to Ottawa U a century ago, it was still on the reading list in in, in English literature, and it certainly deserves a place to still be there. Bunyan took Pilgrim, his hero, or Christian, if you like. He took Pilgrim into every nook and cranny of the Christian life. He was subject to discouragement. He was threatened by danger. He was exposed to temptation. He was brought to the brink of despair. But by the grace of God, he continues on his journey. It's very unlikely that you and I will be subjected in our lifetime to all that Pilgrim experienced. That allegory just gathered it all up and said, there it is, that's the worst that can happen. But let's be realistic. In your lifetime, and you will, and some of us have lived long enough that we have already experienced some of it, some disappointments, some discouragements, some failure, some wrong decisions, some difficult people that we can't avoid, some unexpected sickness, some profound grief. 
temptation to sin, and on and on. And how do we cope in those situations? There's no inoculation that you can take as a Christian that can provide total immunity from being subject to these things. There's no magic bullet that will prevent exposure to these problems. But the word of God has promised to equip us and to bring our spirits to that place where we can face difficult situations. Our text says, you are my hiding place. You are my shield. I hope in your word. Now notice there are two different completely different concepts here. You are my hiding place and you are my shield. Very different. This is taken from the life of a soldier. David was a soldier. He was a warrior. Oh, he was many things. He was a shepherd. He was a king. He was a warrior. and He was a sinner like the rest of us. And he learned to trust the grace of God, and he learned to trust the faithfulness of God. And I can just imagine that David is recalling now a time when he was out as a warrior. And he was being chased by by the enemy, and he was outnumbered. And he knew he couldn't fight, and he could not succeed. And so he found a little cave a little opening in a rock somewhere. And David crawled back in there. He was smart. He said, I'm going to camouflage myself. I'm going to stay in this hiding place and let the enemy go by. Be smart. There are times in your life when you will find yourself in a situation where you are not equipped to confront it. Be smart enough to find the hiding place and let the temptation go by. You're a businessman. You're tempted to be a crook. You're tempted to cheat on your taxes. You're tempted to be unfair with your employees. Find the hiding place. Get into that hiding place with your accountant (laughs) and be honest. Say, I'm tempted to do this, but I'm a Christian business person and I don't want to do that. Keep me honest. You're a young person and you find temptation when you're out dating and you don't want to mess up your life. Your hiding place, careful now, it's not to go off the two of you and find a hiding place. Be careful, the metaphor has to change here. But your hiding place is in fact to stay with friends. To not spend hour after hour after hour after hour until the wee hours of the morning and say, oh Lord, we're praying for strength that we wouldn't be tempted. Your answer is to come home and do some of that dating in your living room. (gasps) Sounds like 1950 all over again, doesn't it? 
We need families. We need marriages like 1950. We need dating like uh, some of that happened in 1950. When I was a youngster growing up in our entire community, Christian or non, I could only name four or five people who were divorced. And now, sadly, you can't show me any evangelical, biblical church where there are less than ten divorced people. And quite often, through no fault of their own, I want to add. But somehow or other, we've got to see this thing turned around by the grace of God. And I'm speaking mostly to the young adults here right now, to those who are considering that next step over the next few years. Surviving, surviving, surviving along the way. And so that is the hiding place. Now the other word there in that text, you are my hiding place and my shield. Now this one is just the opposite. The hiding place is where the soldier withdrew and camouflaged himself. He backed up. He got away from the situation. The shield is where you put it on your arm and you move forward into battle. There is a time when you confront temptation. There's a time when you confront the problem. There's a time when you say, something terrible has happened in my life. I've had a loss. I'm going through grief. Now I've had my period of grief, I've had my period of loss, now I'm putting on my shield and I'm moving forward in my life. And the word says God protects us, God equips us for that. I hope in your word. The soldier in hand-to-hand combat, out in the front, and we can't find a hiding place nor should we even look for one when God equips us to go forward into battle and to do just exactly what he is called to do. The Bible says that the normal Christian life is for us to be in the world, but not the difference that a preposition can make. Otherwise, we would have to go out of the world. There are Christians who've tried that. There are Christians who've created little colonies. And they'd say, well, let's all move into this little colony. Just we four and no more. And we'll keep sin out. We'll keep temptation out. Has it worked? People have experimented with that, and it never works. There are even churches who have said, let's do it. Let's build a sort of spiritual wall around us. We'll teach our people not to get involved out there in the world. We'll teach our people to be so selective that in their whole life, they will be so straight and narrow that they will avoid temptation. We call that legalism. Does it work? I have met some very legalistic church leaders. And I have got to know what has happened in their lives. And I'm going to tell you it hasn't worked. 
I'm thinking of several different legalistic church leaders. Far from here, I wouldn't give any local examples. Who were leaders in their churches, who were elders in their churches. They were always on the backs of their young people. Don't do this and don't do that. And and it was total legalism. I can think of three or four that come to mind right now, and it was discovered along the way that those hypocrites, those rotten people to the core who were saying what they were saying in church, were abusing their own daughters in evangelical churches. Building walls around us, folks just isn't going to work. This passage that we're talking about here says, put on the shield. God is preparing you for life. The Bible isn't, isn't some sort of a message that says, you're going to be some kind of a coward and you're going to come back here and you're going to withdraw and you're going to be nothing for nobody and God is going to bless you and you are going to be a blessing. That's not the Christian way. The Christian way is that God has created you. He has gifted you. He equips you to serve him and to get out there and do it. I have walked in the large way, in the wide way, it says in this psalm, to his glory. Now, thirdly, We've talked about selecting the right path, surviving along the way, now steadying your steps. I know that Spurgeon was right in that now he's talking about David as he's coming along in years because there is not a young person here, and when I say young, under 30 years of age, because that's young. There's not a young person here who gives that much thought to how, how steady their steps are. You are as steady when you walk as when you ski and when you skate and when you jump and when you leap and when you balance on one foot or it doesn't matter. You don't give any thought to your steadiness of steps. When you, you get to be an old geezer like me, you get up off the chair and you start thinking, I don't want to fall between there and the pulpit. My balance isn't what it was 50 years ago. My steady steps aren't what they were in the past. So I know that Spurgeon was right. David had gone on in years here. And what does he say? Verse 133, keep steady, my steps. Now, he's not talking about the physical steps, but he had that experience, and so he was putting that into his spiritual life. Keep steady my steps according to your promise, and let no iniquity get dominion over me. The servant is beginning to age, and he knows it. The older person begins to wonder, what happened to all that freedom of movement that I used to enjoy? How come I now, with some effort and with the right amount of glucosamine, can bowl, but I can't play hockey anymore? How come? 
aging. Lord, keep my steps steady. Keep me steady as I walk through life. It doesn't happen all at once. Little by little, age teaches us to be cautious. And in the spiritual life, experiences teach us to be cautious. We don't want to be like Pilgrim who fell into the ditch. We want to see the dangers, and we have seen them. A few years ago, my wife was down here on Bank Street and was going to go into a store, and there was just a little bit of a rise to get into the door, and we'd had that kind of January weather that we seem to get every January here, and it was covered with ice, and without thinking too much, she slipped, and she broke her wrist. I don't even have to ask her now, but I know that when she gets on an icy sidewalk, she's thinking about the danger of breaking a wrist. You're smart. You have an experience. It helps equip you for the future. The psalmist is asking the Lord to apply his word so his steps will be steady. The concept of steps appeals to me. Again, the young person is thinking not about steps. The young person is thinking about the goal and getting there in one leap. Young people can leap tall buildings, I understand. But it isn't real, is it? Because none of us can leap tall buildings. Sometimes through life we say, I had dreams and they weren't realistic. And I have to become a realist now and I have to fit my dreams as to who I am as a person and the gifts that God has given me. And I have to go one step at a time. And the Bible says that the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord and he delights in his way. And someone has said that you change one letter in that word and it's still biblical. The stops of a man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. And sometimes the stops are just as important as the steps. How are you doing these days? Are you stepping along with sound feet and going forward in your Christian life? How are your stops coming? Are there times that you're taking steps and the Lord says, stop? If you don't do it when you're driving, you'll get a $350 fine. Maybe an accident. Maybe your last one. It's dangerous not to stop. Steps. Take the steps. Life teaches us that that's so important. And it says, keep your steps steady that no iniquity will have dominion over me. The reverse is also true. If we allow sin into our lives, the steps of our life will become unsure. We all know what happens when people 
become careless in their Christian life. They go here, they go there, they do this, they do that, they ignore what the Word is saying, they, they ignore fellowship with believers, they don't read their Bible, they forget about prayer, they start criticizing everybody and everything. And it isn't very long before real sin starts to manifest itself in their life. But turn it around and it also happens. Allow sin to start in your heart. Because Jesus said that's where it all starts. Jesus said sin isn't so much the things out there. Oh, it is sin. To murder somebody obviously is sin. But Jesus said that's not where it starts. It starts in here. It starts with hate. Yes, it's sin to steal. But Jesus said that's not where it starts. That sin of stealing and going into a store like hundreds and thousands of people do these days and stick something in their pocket and walk out with it, millions of dollars of goods are stolen in our society and the cost is divided between all of us, and people rationalize and said, oh, well, I guess it's just a $10 item. It's just a, a DVD. Nobody will really miss it, and the store is making lots of money anyway, so I won't bother, I won't bother paying for it. But when you turn it around and you allow the little sins to start coming into your life, then they start nibbling away at the kind of person you are. Because stealing doesn't start out there when you take the DVD off the shelf. Jesus said it starts here. It starts with covetousness. It starts with wanting something that you didn't pay for. Wanting something that somebody else has. I hold back my feet from evil every way in order to keep your word. This is verse 101 in this psalm, and I'd like to call it the Christian Life 101. Go to university and you start in psychology, and it's psychology 101. This morning, we're going to talk about Christian Life 101. Let me read it again. I hold back my feet from evil every way in order to keep your word. And to me, this says there is within my possibility to do something about what I do with my feet. It's my behavior. I can say yes or I can say no. I can decide some of the things that I do. I read a Christian article recently. And the title just jumped off the page, and it went something like this. That prayer can be a real negative in our Christian life. Is this person orthodox? And then I read the article, and I agreed with the writer. Because what the writer was saying is sometimes we have things in our life And we say, well, we'll pray about that. More than that, we'll get together with three or four people and we'll pray. And we'll come to church on Wednesday night and we'll make it as a 
as a subject of prayer. When, in fact, the writer of this article was saying, all we're doing is ignoring our responsibility to do what we can do. We don't need prayer on it. We know God's will on it. He has declared it exactly. And we say, yes, Lord. Somebody said, oh, pray that I might get up on Sunday morning so that I can get to church on time. Nonsense. Go to the store and buy an alarm clock. There are things in life you don't need to pray about. And I know that God is gracious, and I know that he's merciful, and I know that he's patient. And if he were human, I would simply say, stop wasting God's time and yours. And stop coming to prayer meetings and praying and putting things out on the table that don't need to be prayed about. It's the first of the year. Oh, Lord, I'm going to get a dozen people together and I'm going to pray, Lord, that this year I will lose some weight. That decision, that answer to that prayer, starts when you go to the grocery store. It starts in your kitchen. The answer. And what you do is you sit down at the table and you thank God for the good food that you have prepared. And you say, Lord, bless this good food, this small portion that I have before me. And if you're praying him to bless some great big feast, when you really have told everybody that you want to lose weight, be honest, is God going to honor your prayer? What are you doing here in your Christian life? Lord, bless this mammoth 16-ounce steak. I know you're going to bless it, Lord. And help those Christians last Wednesday night who are praying for me that I might lose 10 pounds. Well, you get the point. There are things in our life that come under the category of behavior. And we have the capacity to say yes or to say no. At least that's what the Bible teaches. I hold back my feet. I, not the Lord, I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. And fourthly, singing your way home. Oh, I love this one. My tongue will sing of your word for all your commandments I write. Oh, when we reach those last few miles of our life, that we might be able to speak as David spoke as he closes this life journal, this life psalm. David was a singer. He had a, he had a reputation. He was known as the sweet singer of Israel. I'm not surprised that when he gives us all of this Build up in Psalm 119, which was his life journal. That's the way we're looking at it this morning. When he comes to the end, he said, Lord, you put a song in my heart. Lord, I want to burst forth in an anthem to you for who you are and what you've done and for your mercy and for your grace in my life.
His joy is like the soldier coming home from battle, carrying the spoils of victory in those days. Confidently, he places himself among the obedient servants of the Lord. David had sinned. David had committed adultery. It's in the text. He had committed murder. It's in the text. His sins weren't hidden. He was a public person and his sins were public. But the reason that David could come to the end of his life with joy in his heart and praising God, knowing that everything was right between him and God, was because David knew that God was a forgiving God. David lived centuries before the cross of Christ. But David knew that under the old covenant, that when that lamb was Sacrifice to God, the real lamb with a small L, was butchered and sacrificed to the Lord that the blood of that lamb, under the old covenant, David knew that God provided for forgiveness of sin. And when we now, under the new covenant, you see, the old covenant, we sometimes talk about it as being the Old Testament It was the promise. And the New Testament, where Jesus made a new deal, a new covenant with us, that's the New Testament. That's the fulfillment of the promise. We no longer have altars and lambs and goats and bulls and offerings like that. Why? Because 2,000 years ago, the Lamb of God, capital L now, the Lamb of God, was crucified on that cross between two thieves. And there his blood ran down. He didn't have to be there. The Bible says he could have called upon legions of angels who would have come to help him. But he was there because of his love for you and for me, because he knew that we were just as sinful as David. Jesus knew that in our hearts we have broken every commandment. Jesus knew that in our hearts there are times when I have not honored the name of God. There are times when I have not honored God as God. There are times when I have not given time to God. There are times when I have not honored the name of God. There are times when I have not honored my parents. There are times when I have wanted what wasn't mine. There are times when I have hated. There are times when I have wanted a woman that wasn't mine. There are times when I have wanted things that weren't mine. There are times when my word wasn't worth a nickel. I have broken every one of God's commandments. Jesus was on that cross. And he said, well... I am dying and I'm giving my blood so that you might come to the foot of this cross with your whole load of sin and that you might come with all of your brokenness and all that you are and I will forgive every bit of it. I will take all that you have just recounted, he says to you and he says to me, And I will put that through the wash of my precious blood. And coming out at the other side, you will be holy. 
you will be holy. Did you get it? Not sort of washed, but you will be holy. Because when you come to God with your sin, when you come to Jesus by faith, by grace we are saved, by grace we pass over, we are no longer considered sinners, but we are now saints. Saints are holy. There we were only fit for hell. There we were only fit for the punishment of sinners. But now we are fit to spend eternity with Jesus Christ. Would you bow with me, please? One of the most difficult things I have to do sometimes as a pastor is conduct a funeral service. And when that funeral service is for our brother or our sister in Christ, grief and emotions are tempered by the assurance that that person is in heaven with the Lord. I'm going to tell you as a pastor, it's not an easy thing to be conducting a funeral service when the person lying in the casket before you, you have no idea where they are at that moment. I want to give you the opportunity right now to cross the line from maybe to be absolutely sure. I want you to cross that line from sinner to saint, from mixed up and sinful to sure and forgiven. Not asking you that you will go out and in your own strength Be pure and holy. That will never work anyway. We reach holiness and we reach purity, as I hope you got this morning, as we honor God's word and apply it in our lives. But I'm going to say that it isn't possible, but even if it was possible, to keep absolutely carefully every commandment, we still wouldn't have eternal life. But it isn't possible because the Bible says that all have sinned and come short of God's glory. That's why Jesus died. Is there anyone here this morning, up until now you've been a stranger to the gospel and you would like to just slip up your hand and say, well, I've understood the gospel this morning for the first time and I want to come to Jesus Christ. Is there anyone? We're not going to embarrass you, but we are going to pray. And maybe this morning God has spoken to you and you are a believer and you're my brother and you're my sister. And maybe this word has spoken to you just like it has spoken to me. When I was preparing this sermon, there were things in it that I did not want to say because they are such a challenge to all of us. And I'm not going to ask you to put up your hand because I expect that most of us would have our hands up. When God speaks to us, let's respond back to him. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace that you've brought us to the foot of the cross. Thank you, Lord, that you challenge us, that you help us move our feet in the right direction. 
that you cause us to step forward, that you cause us to step aside into the hiding place, that you cause us to stop. And Lord, we are looking for that day as we near home that we will have a song bursting from within us of praise to you and of thanksgiving for your holy word. In Jesus' name we pray, and may Jesus be praised. Amen.